Okay, this week, lots going on, huh? In that, in those four chapters, all right? The author is wrapping up Absalom's story. There's lots of places. There's lots of people names. Carly was already giving me grief before about like pronouncing those correctly. Already a little nervous, okay? Some of those people were new. Some of those places were new. Some of them were familiar to us. He's also, the author is also like tying up loose ends of things that he's like left, not just Absalom's story, but things that he's left um, along the way, tying up some loose ends. He's calling back to Israel's history that we're going to see a few times tonight. And he's still moving the story along because there's still four chapters left after this section. And so if you feel the same way I did, um, that, hey, there's a lot going on. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I felt that too. And so right off the bat, I hope that it is helpful in me telling you, hoping that this will be um, a little bit easier to see that tonight's section is bookended by two threats to the kingdom. There are several themes or threads that run from the beginning of scripture to the end, like we've already seen with covenant and with kings. And so if we've seen it with kings, then it should be easy for us to see that the theme of kingdom runs through scripture too. From the start where Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to have dominion over every living thing, to the finish where the apostle John shared his vision of seeing the kingdom theme come to full fruition with Christ as the eternal king among God's people in an eternal kingdom. In between, there are many connections to that one thread of kingdom, especially when we see the monarchy of Israel begin in the book of Samuel. And while there was a literal kingdom and literal kings on the throne, we know those stories were meant to point forward to a better king and a greater kingdom. So while the kingdom theme plays out in the Bible, we also see multiple threats to God's kingdom that arise as a a result of an enemy. The first threat to the kingdom comes shortly after the beginning of the book of Genesis and lasts to just before the close of the book of Revelation. Tonight, we'll zoom in on two threats to David's kingdom that point backward and forward along the, the markers of the kingdom thread, while we also get to see some unnamed, unlikely, and unwavering wavering characters that God used to help his kingdom and extinguish these enemies and threats to the kingdom. Let's pray. God, thank you once again just to be able to gather with these women. Lord, six weeks into um, this study, I just thank you for uh, their faithfulness, their willingness to come and to just continue gathering. And Lord, I pray that tonight that you would just show us this kingdom thread clearly, that we would see you uh, more clearly through these four chapters in 2 Samuel, and that um, the result would be us knowing you more, loving you more, and obeying you more. Pass these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we left you last week with quite the cliffhanger. David had just fled Jerusalem after his son Absalom had spent a few years gaining support from the people of Israel right under his dad's nose and started a full-on rebellion against his father's kingship. In week five's section, one of David's most trusted counselors, Ahithophel, 
had sided with Absalom and given him advice on how to take over his father's throne. David had sent another counselor, Hushai, back to Jerusalem to try and thwart Ahithophel's counsel after David prayed that God would turn Ahithophel's advice to foolishness. So let's read to see what happened. 2 Samuel 17, we're going to read the first 14 verses. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he's weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I'll strike down only the king, and I'll bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom called, er, then Absalom said, called Hush, call Hushai the archai also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and they are enraged, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place, and as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Okay, so Ahithophel's plan was to strike David immediately while he was physically tired and emotionally down. Ahithophel would lead 12,000 men. That was, that's a large number to us, but it was a smaller number in military, for military purposes, to only take down the king and to bring all the people back to Absalom. Initially, Absalom and all Israel's elders were on board. But then Absalom made the decision to hear what Hushai would say about the plan on the table. And to everyone's surprise, Hushai went against Ahithophel's advice. The end of chapter 16 told us that in those days, Ahithophel's counsel was as if consulting the word of God. So to go against Ahithophel's advice was unheard of. Hushai's plan was ultimately in David's favor, giving him more time to prepare for the inevitable battle. Hushai talked David up, trying to poke holes in Ahithophel's view of David being weary and discouraged. Hushai reminded Absalom his dad was an expert in war, wouldn't be easy to find, and was angry as a mama bear without her cubs. He then said when David's men fought and struck down some of Absalom's 12,000 servants to protect David, because they would, 
the remainder of Absalom's men would all scatter in fear. He counseled for Absalom to gather as many men as possible from the whole land of Israel and for Absalom to go into battle to take David and his servants on himself. We're going to see more evidence of Absalom's pride tonight, but the first example was right here in choosing to go with Hushai's plan over Ahithophel's plan. Ahithophel's plan would have made Ahithophel the hero on a small scale, but it still would have given the throne to Absalom. Instead, Absalom chose to lead a large army into battle against his father. He was hoping to be the mighty hero and the conquering king. But we're told point blank, this was an answer to David's earlier prayer. The Lord had ordained Absalom's decision so that the plan that actually made the most sense and was the most or the more strategic military plan would be defeated because the Lord was going to bring harm on Absalom, this traitorous son of the rightful king threatening to establish the kingdom for his own. Hushai seemed to have been dismissed from Absalom before learning he would follow his advice over Ahithophel's because the next scene we're shown was Hushai running to the priests Zadok and Abiathar to pass on a message to David to get over the Jordan River quickly to separate further from Ahithophel should Absalom choose his plan. Jonathan and Ahimaaz, the sons of Zadok and Abiathar, were chosen to be the runners for this message. And an unnamed female servant was to pass the message to them so they'd not be seen in the city. But they were spotted, and it was reported to Absalom. So Jonathan and Ahimaaz ended up in another woman's house where she hid the two men in a well and threw off Absalom's servants who were looking for the men. I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Joshua, but this little story runs a very close to Rahab in Jericho, a woman who hid two Israelite spies and threw off those who were looking for them as Israel waited for directions to cross the Jordan. Patterned stories like this were meant for the original audience and for us to recall God's faithfulness in the past and to anticipate it in the present. David received this hard-fought message with the help of the unnamed women, and all those who were with him crossed the Jordan River by daybreak. The author interjected a word about Ahithophel when he realized that Hushai's plan had been taken instead of his own. He went home, got everything in order, and ended his life. Ahithophel's story ended sadly. He knew death was what he would receive because of his betrayal against the rightful king and kingdom. Commentators pointed out the striking similarities between Ahithophel's betrayal here in Samuel and Matthew's account of Judas's betrayal in Matthew 26 and 27. In fact, David was at the Mount of Olives when he heard that Ahithophel had betrayed him. And Jesus was at Gethsemane the garden at the base of the Mount of Olives when Judas betrayed him. Both traitors set things in order, Ahithophel being his own household, and Judas by throwing back the money he'd received for turning Jesus over before ending their lives by hanging. 
They both saw no hope for their treacherous actions aligned with an enemy against the true king and his kingdom. Surprisingly, David found refuge in Mahanaim, the same place Ishbosheth and Abner had set up shop years before. Absalom was not too far behind David, crossing the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Absalom had chosen his cousin Amasa as his military commander, another one of David's nephews. So in what could be regarded as former enemy territory in Mahanaim, David found three unlikely supporters and helpers in his time of need. There was Shobi, the other son of Nahash, former king of the Ammonites, Macher, a former Saul loyalist who had hosted Mephibosheth prior to David calling him to Jerusalem, and Barzillai the Gileadite, a wealthy man in his old age. The Lord provided strength for his king through a foreigner whose brother had just been at war with David just a few years prior, a close friend of David's fallen enemy, Saul, and an elderly man who had nearly fulfilled his days. What an unlikely crew to bring provisions to the king on account of the threat to the kingdom in the wilderness. With Absalom camp close, after Hushai buying David a few extra days, it was time for David to determine a battle plan. So we're going to read the first eight verses of chapter 18. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai diligently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Okay, so David wanted to go out with his men. Remember, this was another civil war, a similar scene to what we saw with Abner's men against David's servants earlier in the book. The losses on the opposite side of David were very great. And this fight serves as another example of showing that sin affects the lives of others. In this case, David and Absalom's sins were both affecting the entire kingdom. The battle was fought in the forest. The author noted the forest devoured more people than the sword. I was a little disappointed when the commentator said that this simply meant it was not an advantageous spot for Absalom's men to fight. And I, I can understand that, being surrounded by trees. But I couldn't help but thinking about the trees, like in the Chronicles of Narnia, that helped fight the battles. 
because of the trees that Nicole showed us in week three that had the sound of marching because the Lord had gone out before David and his men. So I'll let the Spirit tell you what really was going on. So with David's men not allowing him into the fight, because they knew that's who Absalom was only after, we were given a zoomed-in view of exactly how Absalom was faring in this battle. So we're going to look at verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Okay, do you remember how we were more formally introduced to Absalom when he returned to Jerusalem after murdering his brother? 2 Samuel 14, 25 and 26 says, Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his hair of his head every year, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels, or about six pounds. So the dude had a lot of nice hair. And most scholars believe it was his hair that got stuck in the tree as he was running away from David's servants. His source of pride led to his downfall. The mule he was riding on left him behind, and he was left midair, hung in a tree. Mules were what kings rode on at the time, so the mule leaving Absalom was symbolic of him losing the kingdom seat he was so desperately trying to grasp. Joab heard and did what Joab did best. He disregarded the command of his king thrust three javelins in Absalom, and then commanded ten of his men to finish him off. Old Joab. Did y'all scratch your head like a little bit at that part of the narrative? After all, it was Joab who brought this threat, this enemy, back to the kingdom, and then back into the king's presence. Though Absalom's threat had to be dealt with, and the Lord had determined to bring harm to him. There is irony in Joab being the one to end the threat that he shared responsibility for. The author shared that the men of Israel, those following Absalom, fled. And then he interjected another piece of information for us, that Absalom had spent some time during his life to build a monument for himself to be remembered by in the king's valley. What possibly started out as seeking justice on behalf of his sister Tamar had completely dissolved into pridefully setting himself up as an enemy and threatening a kingdom that was in no way his to have. This was now an even messier situation. David had sinned, and one of the consequences was the sword would devour within his house. Absalom had left for a long time, only brought back to Jerusalem by Joab's meddling. David then had stayed at his new headquarters in Mahanaim and told his men to deal gently with Absalom. Joab, in his truest form, didn't heed his king's command, but we also already knew that God planned harm for Absalom. After all, he had chosen to become an enemy of the king. 
And so here we see flawed human actions still bring about God's plan to get rid of the threat to the kingdom. But how would David react? Ahimaaz was very eager to take the news to David. Joab, no doubt remembering the Amalekite being killed in chapter 1, thought it'd be better to have a Cushite messenger take the news. So the Cushite was an unnamed foreign servant. Joab probably saw as expendable should David respond by ordering him to be killed for the news he carried. The Cushite took off, choosing the most direct path but more difficult terrain. Ahimaaz didn't stop asking to take the message, even after the Cushite had left. And eventually Joab relented and let him go. Ahimaaz chose a longer but easier path, resulting in him beating the Cushite to David. So let's see how this shakes out. We're going to pick up in verse 28. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I, I saw a great commotion, but I did not know where it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you forever be like that, for evil, be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Okay, so Ahimaaz chickened out probably realizing when he got in front of David that he might not take the news that his son was dead very well, and instead gave this general statement about winning the battle. And when asked, he purposefully withheld what he did know about Absalom. Then the Cushite entered, probably confused to see Ahimaaz. And the Cushite was glad. He called his news good. After all, it was. The enemy to King David and the threat to the kingdom was no more. Another unnamed character faithfully proclaimed the truth of this situation. The first threat to the kingdom was extinguished. But David responded with great grief. Very different from his high-level laments we saw earlier in the book. No doubt most of the pain coming from his own guilt regarding the entire situation. Had he not sinned so grievously, maybe all of this wouldn't have come to pass. Had he not been so passive with Amnon and then with Absalom, maybe this wouldn't have happened. The grief was heavy and raw. This was the third child he had lost from the ripple effect of his sin. But due to the current state of his kingdom, this was not the best response for the faithful servants who had risked their lives for him. But don't worry. Good old Joab's not going to let him stay that way. Let's read chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. 
So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Okay, so Joab found out David was having a full-on pity party, making his servants ashamedly walk around Mahanaim like they had deserted their king instead of saved him. And let's be honest, what Joab said was mostly right. It's probably not the best way to say it. I view the last part of his statement as a threat that he would work to bring about David's servants leaving him and more evil coming upon David than what had already had in his life. This threatening behavior was too standard Joab. The point is David wasn't thinking clearly because his own guilt was at the forefront of his mind and he needed to see the situation for what it actually was. His son was a threat to the kingdom. Even the most surprising people can speak truth at times. And verse 8 told us that David listened to Joab, and he went out and took a seat at the gate. Absalom's rebellion began at the city gate, courting the people to himself. His rebellion story ended with David at another city gate, back with his people. But things weren't back to normal just yet. David was still not in Jerusalem. The people of Israel were shaken and they were arguing. Their faithful king that had once defeated their enemies fled from Jerusalem, leaving his throne because of an enemy. They'd anointed Absalom, who was now dead, and no one really wanted to step up and get David back to his throne. The first threat had caused a lot of chaos in the kingdom. David called Zadok and Abiathar and reached out to the elders of his own tribe of Judah, the territory where Absalom began his rebellion, presumably gaining quite a few supporters within Judah. And David's message to them made it seem like out of all the tribes, they were the most hesitant of bringing David back. The opposite of what you would think, especially with them having anointed David seven years earlier than the northern tribes. The threat to the kingdom had shaken the loyalty of David to their once beloved king. In a surprising twist, David called Amasa, Absalom's commander, to replace Joab. It appeared that David had finally had enough of his one nephew and swapped him out for another. This would have also been strategic to pull those out of the tribe of Judah that were in deep with Absalom back to David. 
And David's strategic policy worked once more, as the text says, he swayed all the hearts of the tribe of Judah back to him. And they called him back to Jerusalem, meeting at Gilgal to bring him back over the Jordan River. Remember, places mentioned often hold Israelite history. And Gilgal was one of those places. Gilgal was where the Israelite people crossed over the Jordan in the book of Joshua and celebrated their first Passover in the Promised Land. Gilgal was also the place the kingdom of Israel was renewed under King Saul. Gilgal had been a place of remembrance, of rejoicing, and of renewal. And Gilgal was where this rightful king was met by his people in returning him to the promised throne and trying to renew this kingdom once more. David was met by a few familiar characters at the Jordan. First, Shimei, who we met last week from Saul's tribe of Benjamin. He met David with 1,000 other men of Benjamin and begged for forgiveness. Shimei knew he deserved death for his treatment of the king on David's way out of Jerusalem. But similarly to what Saul did at Gilgal, the same place, in pardoning worthless men who had cursed him, David pardoned Shimei. Even though Abishai was still hasty to ask to kill him, David rather chose to show mercy on this special day of his homecoming. We could see David had had it with his nephews being so quick to shed blood. And as you know, unfortunately, that's not going to stop. Second, Ziba, who has been a recurring character for us since week two, also met David at the Jordan with his 15 sons and 20 servants. Remember, he had told David that Mephibosheth sided with Absalom. And David had given Saul's entire estate to Ziba on his way out of town. The author didn't give us much of an exchange between David and Ziba here, but the author did give us the exchange we've been waiting for. Did Mephibosheth really do what Ziba accused him of? Let's read verses 24 through 30. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Y'all, Ziba was a big old liar. Remember how the author kept repeating at the first, like, Several times Mephibosheth came on scene that he was a lame in both feet. I told you that there was a reason. This is the reason right here. The author repeated it and repeated it so that we would remember Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. Ziba had used Mephibosheth's physical ailment for his own material gain. He saw the opening to move from servant of an estate 
to an owner, and he took the chance. When David left, Mephibosheth asked Ziba for one of the donkeys so he could go with him. And Ziba ran off with all the donkeys to David and spun his story. Mephibosheth was left behind in Jerusalem, and his outward grief was evident. He didn't take care of himself at all. He was distraught because the rightful king was not on his throne. Mephibosheth likened David to an angel of God, recalling that his family was doomed to die before David intervened in his life with covenant love and told David to do whatever seemed good to him. I've been irritated at David a few times during this book, but this right here is real high up on the list. He decided Mephibosheth and Ziba would divide the land. And maybe that was to thank Ziba for what he provided, even though if we think about it, all of that stuff was Mephibosheth's stuff anyways. Maybe he was still wary of those close to him turning on him. Whatever the matter, Mephibosheth came out worse off than before. And his response was beautiful faithfulness and undeterred loyalty. When he said to David, oh, let Ziba take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. And some of you may wonder how we can be so sure that Mephibosheth was telling the truth here. And I think the author's repetition earlier on bears a lot of weight, as well as the chance he took on his outward grief in Jerusalem among Absalom's supporters. But this story of the king splitting something in half and the response of the one telling the truth is a foreshadowing of David's son Solomon standing between two women fighting over a baby. The woman who the baby didn't belong to was fine with the child being cut in half, while the true mother wanted the child to live, even if the child was given to the other. Mephibosheth's humble response here was proof he was the truth teller, even if he lost everything. Mephibosheth was an unwavering supporter of his king while he faced a threat to his kingdom. Lastly, for these meeting scenes, again, Barzillai was mentioned. The wealthy old man who had brought David and his servants overflowing care packages in the wilderness. He escorted David to, the, to, Jerus or to Jordan, and David invited him to live in Jerusalem. Bar Barzillai cited his age and asked to just live out the rest of his days at home before offering Chimham, probably his son, for David to use in whatever capacity he needed. And the end of chapter 19 showed a progression of Israel and Judah's current state. Earlier in the chapter, all of Israel had fled to their own homes. No tribe was confident in calling David back, including Judah. But then David struck a few deals, and now he was on the way home with the tribe of Judah and half the people of Israel. The kingdom was slowly coming back together. Or was it? The men of Israel, the northern tribes, came to the king and they were upset that Judah was who brought him back when they were the ones who had started the conversation. The men of Judah got sassy with David being their blood relative, which resulted in Israel pointing out their size compared to Judah, and there was a fierce argument between the two. We've seen a couple of fractures along similar lines of Israel and Judah in the book of Samuel. These fractures weren't going away. These fault lines that were created would eventually lead to where the kingdom will split in the future. 
One man in particular wanted to use this current weakness to his own advantage. So we'll read chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So threat number two was introduced as Sheba, a worthless Benjamite. He craftily saw a weakness in the kingdom to exploit, and he called Israel away from David. And thanks to the fragility of the situation from the first threat, the text said all the men of the northern tribes withdrew from David and followed Sheba. But Judah stayed with David. And then in verse 3, we got another one of the author's interjections. So we're going to read verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. It's one verse. It's one of the author's interjections, but I wanted to spend some time here because most of us have been really concerned for the women in this story and in the book at large. It's a sad verse. It's a sad situation because sin affects more than the sinner alone. But the fact that the author even included this detail is a sign that he thought it important. The lives of these women were worth mentioning again and tying up the loose end of what had happened to them. The end of their story was indeed sad should serve as an ever-present reminder that our sin, even our secret sin, affects the lives of others. There were many laws throughout the Old Testament about a man not sleeping with his father's wives. In some cases, depending on the particulars of a situation, the result would be being forever defiled, being cut off, or even being put to death for both parties. I think all of us would say that None of those options would really sit well with us because of the particulars to this situation with Absalom. And then think about how we've already seen the culturally accepted practice of taking a king's concubine as a grasp for, for power. We've seen it with Abner. We saw it with Absalom. Letting these women go, what would be in our minds like free was not a good option for their livelihoods and could have only resulted in more harm to them. Instead, David didn't sleep with them again. He provided a guard for them, provided for all their physical needs throughout the remainder of their lives. In a sad situation, this was actually the best case scenario. And the last word of their story was that they lived as widows. Now, only God could provide a glimmer of hope within this tragic story. Because throughout the Bible, God calls himself the defender and protector of widows. He executes justice on their behalf, and he curses those who do them harm. 
being the defender and protector of widows in his holy habitation means that this is intrinsic to his character. It is who he is. Because of this often repeated attribute, I could look at this verse and I was sure that God saw and he cared for those women well. Now, enemy number two was still on the scene. David had to do something quick with the chaotic and fragile kingdom. He called Amasa to gather the men of Judah to take care of Sheba. Amasa fell behind David's timeline, but David still had to act fast. He put Abishai in charge of the mighty men to go and to take care of Sheba before he did more damage to the already fractured kingdom. You saw in your homework that the mighty men were called Joab's men, and we were not left long to wonder why. Amasa showed up late to meet his cousins. Joab had a knife. We all know where this is going. The knife fell out on the ground on his way to greet Amasa. Joab reached out with his right hand to grab the beard of his cousin, which is considered a friendly, which was considered a friendly greeting. We don't do that now. <laughs> that would be weird. Don't do that. Which was considered a friendly greeting, okay? So he reaches out with his right hand, friendly greeting, but with the knife that he picked up in his left hand, he stabs Amasa in the stomach. Well, that murder felt the worst out of all of them, right? Because this was for sure just because Joab wanted to keep his job. A selfish and foolish reason to take life. Joab left Amasa's body with a guy to direct traffic around him. And it caused such a problem with the men walking by, probably due to shock and confusion, that the guy drug Amasa's body, threw a cover over it to keep that foot traffic flowing. Sheba had made it to one of the northernmost towns in Israel, seemingly not gathering as many men as he thought he would, just his own clan. He tried to take refuge in a walled city called Abel of Beth Makkah. We just watched Joab take his cousin's life in cold blood, the third murder of his. So it's no wonder he didn't attempt any diplomatic conversations to begin with. He prepared an all-out attack on the whole city by surrounding it and preparing to take down the walls. But then a wise woman called for Joab to listen to her. This wise woman was truly wise, not like the woman of Tekoa Joab had used for his own agenda earlier. She shared that the city of Abel was a mother in Israel, a place where wise counsel was sought through faithful and peaceable people, such as this unnamed woman. And Joab said he wouldn't destroy the city. And he explained why he was there, to which the woman responded that she'd see to it that Sheba's head would be thrown over the wall. And in her wisdom, she talked to the people of her town who cut off this rebellious enemy's head and threw it out to Joab. Joab's men dispersed, and he returned to the king. Threat number two was taken care of through the words of a wise but unnamed woman. There's a proverbial story in the book of Ecclesiastes about wisdom being better than weapons of war. It used a, the picture of a great king who had besieged a city that a poor wise man delivered the city from. And this woman's wise words were heard above Joab's quickness to shed blood and his weapons of war. 
Her wisdom led to a threat to David's kingdom being put out without other lives being lost in the city of Abel, a mother in Israel. With the rightful king back on his throne in Jerusalem and two threats extinguished, our section ended tonight with a mirror passage to the end of chapter 8, a list of David's officials within the kingdom. Much life, much sin, much sadness had been lived between chapter 8 and, and now, but not a whole lot had changed. The most noteworthy name being Joab, still at the top of the list as military commander, a foolishly murderous man who did continue to show loyalty to the kingdom, but only through his ideas and timing in direct violation of the king's command and the king's ways. Tonight's section had many historical callbacks, many familiar and new characters. The book ended with two threats to the kingdom that clearly tie to other kingdom threads in scripture. The first threat was brought on by the king's own son, who Nicole showed us had whispered to the people of Israel that he could do better than the rightful king. There were many moving parts to extinguish this threat, including unnamed women, unlikely characters in the wilderness, and one unwavering supporter in Jerusalem. By his own pride, Absalom found himself hung in a tree and buried beneath a pile of stones. Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 says, A man hanged on a tree was cursed by God. And then there are three different accounts in the book of Joshua where accursed men were buried under a pile of stones, just like Absalom. In Absalom, we see a traitorous son seeking to establish a kingdom for himself, hung in a tree between heaven and earth, buried under stones, remembered for his threat against a throne which he didn't belong on as an enemy to the kingdom. Do you see an inverse there? Maybe of another one of David's sons to come? Instead of a death resulting in curse and chaos, in Christ, we see a submissive son seeking to establish a kingdom for God, hung on a tree between heaven and earth, buried behind a stone, remembered for his resurrection to a throne he will always belong on as the forever king to the kingdom. The apostle Paul said in the book of Galatians that this king redeemed us from our prideful selves, from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. Christ's death led to redemption from the curse and rest from the chaos that sin had caused. And then the second threat was from a worthless man named Sheba. Sheba tried to begin a rebellion with a visible fracture in the kingdom, whispering to the people that he too could do better than the rightful king. There are a few beheadings in the book of Samuel, the most memorable being Goliath, an enemy of the kingdom, 
dressed in snakeskin like the serpent in the garden, whose head was crushed by an unlikely conqueror in young David. In this section, held Sheba's beheading, a man who tried to follow in the footsteps of the whispering deceiver in the garden, another enemy of the kingdom, whose head was crushed by a city that was a mother in Israel through an unnamed woman. Crushed heads should call us back to Genesis 3.15 when God was cursing that original enemy. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We have seen David fail many times at this point in the narrative. In this section, we saw him choose to not go fiercely after the first threat to the kingdom, which resulted in chaos and civil war. And then, with a fractured and fragile kingdom, a second threat arose that David did sin to take care of quickly. The threats were ultimately handled by God's sovereignty over both foolish and wise human actions. Then we saw David kindly pardon a begging enemy and then take half an estate away from an unwavering supporter. We are already well aware that this king was not the perfect king. David was a mixed bag, fully human in a fallen world. And this is another week and another reminder to look forward to the better king that has already handled every threat to his greater kingdom. Christ has already been bruised by the enemy, by being hung on a tree. The kingdom may continue to be threatened by the prideful and the deceitful for a determined time. Regardless of the visible fractures and fragility caused by chaos in the kingdom brought on by human sin, there is a better king who is once and for all and even now continues to crush the head of his enemy through unnamed, unlikely, and unwavering followers, and who will one day bring lasting peace, justice, and flourishing to his people in his greater kingdom that will never end. So when we look around and we see threats to the kingdom, let us set our eyes on the rightful king who never leaves his throne and is sovereign and omnipotent over all. Let's pray. God, once again, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories that just seem so um, disjointed and so far removed from our current moment, but that you have made truth just to be timeless and that we can see more of Christ through this and even David's failings, that we can see um, just how fierce and how loyal and how you are going to keep your kingdom and your people. So Lord, I pray as we transition to a time of group discussion that the discussion would just continue to be edifying to us, that it would be glorifying and honoring to you. And I pray that as we round out this study with these next two weeks, that you would just continue to give us a fervor to see more of you within these pages of 2 Samuel. In Christ's name, amen.